Numbers chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If a man or woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of separation to the Lord as a Nazarite, he must abstain from wine and other fermented drink and must not drink vinegar made from wine or from other fermented drink. He must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins. As long as he is a Nazarite, he must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the seeds or skin. During the entire period of his vow of separation, no razor may be used on his head. He must be holy until the period of his separation to the Lord is over. He must let the hair of his head grow long. Throughout the period of his separation to the Lord, he must not go near a dead body. Even if his own father or mother or brother or sister dies, he must not make himself ceremonially unclean on account of them, because the symbol of his separation to God is on his head. Throughout the period of his separation, he is consecrated to the Lord. If someone dies suddenly in his presence, thus defiling the hair he has dedicated, he must shave his head on the day of his cleansing, the seventh day. Then on the eighth day, he must bring two doves or two young pigeons to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting. The priest is to offer one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering to make atonement for him because he sinned by being in the presence of the dead body. That same day, he is to consecrate his head. He must dedicate himself to the Lord for the period of his separation and must bring a year-old male lamb as a guilt offering. The previous days do not count because he became defiled during his separation. Now this is the law for the Nazarite when the period of his separation is over. He is to be brought to the entrance to the tent of meeting. There he is to present his offerings to the Lord, a year-old male lamb without defect for a burnt offering, a year-old ewe lamb without defect for a sin offering, a ram without defect for a fellowship offering, together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, and a basket of bread made without yeast, cakes made of fine flour mixed with oil, and wafers spread with oil. The priest is to present them before the Lord and make the sin offering and the burnt offering. He is to present the basket of unleavened bread and is to sacrifice the ram as a fellowship offering to the Lord, together with its grain offering and drink offering. Then, at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the Nazarite must shave off the hair that he dedicated. He is to take the hair and put it in the fire that is under the sacrifice of the fellowship offering. After that, the Nazarite has, shaved, after the Nazarite has shaved off the hair of his dedication, the priest is to place in his hands a boiled shoulder of the ram, and a cake and a wafer from the basket, both made without yeast. The priest shall then wave before them, before the Lord, as a wave offering. They are holy and belong to the priest, together with the breast that was waved and the thigh that was presented. After that, the Nazarite may drink wine. This is the law of the Nazarite, who vows his offering to the Lord in accordance with his separation, in addition to whatever else he can afford. 
He must fulfill the, the vow he has made according to the law of the Nazarite. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everyone. Just bear with me while I organise myself. Could be a while. Okay, let's um, let's pray before I speak. Heavenly Father, as we come to study your word together now, we thank you for it. And we pray that you would be our leader and teacher as we try to understand it. And Father, we pray that you would, um, you would open our hearts to be changed by what you have to say to us. You would open our minds to understand it. And Father... We'd like to be people who can indeed say, take our lives, let them be everything. Here we are, use us for your glory. So Father, please change us this morning, we pray, in Jesus' name, Amen. Um, Last Saturday, I read a very interesting article in The Guardian by a chap called Tim Lott, in case anyone wanted to read it afterwards, it's here. And um, Tim Lott is an interesting guy who kind of writes about family life in a fairly thoughtful way. And um, the headline last Saturday was, Watch out for the moral mission creep to and from our children. Um, watch out for the moral mission creep to, to and from our children. Don't worry, it stops there. In essence, uh, he argues that there's a great deal of hypocrisy about modern morality, particularly what he sees as middle-class notions of morality. Uh, he says, uh, and I might as well say uh, that I've got some sympathy for this, he says, I have a lurking and possibly shameful suspicion that a lot of what passes for modern morality, buying eco-washing powder, signing endless and usually pointless online petitions and doing charity marathons slash mountain climbs slash moustache cultivation <laughs> is a kind of exhibitionism that convinces ourselves and our children that we are good people while actually achieving relatively little. In essence, he argues that the problem of evil in the world is just too big for anyone to think that they can meaningfully do anything about it. Uh, most of us, he says, most of us are helpless to redress most evil. So 
so I'm just going to try and do something. Doing something about it. Most of us, he says, are helpless to redress most evils. And the best answer he comes up with is superficially attractive, but somewhat passive. Don't harm anyone else, is his approach to the problem. Don't harm anyone else. Or in his words, don't do anything to anyone else that you wouldn't want done to you. And his conclusion is this. After a lifetime, I've only come up with one ethical trope. Be good, but don't try to be better than you are. It just leads to hypocrisy. Well, that's fine as far as it goes. Of course we shouldn't hurt other people. But does it go far enough? I don't think it's the kind of approach to life that that God's got in mind for us. Firstly, it ignores God altogether and certainly ignores the idea that God might have any kind of claim on our lives. And secondly, it ignores one of the essential characteristics of God's claim on our lives which is that we're to go well beyond merely negatively not harming other people and instead and positively even extravagantly we're to go towards reflecting God's love for mankind by doing good for people, doing good for people. And surely that's part of the essence of Jesus' teaching in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. And a life lived in response to that claim and that calling is a living and open testimony to the great God who issues that claim. So Jesus says at Matthew 5 verse 14, it's a really well-known saying, you are the light of the world. That's all of us here this morning. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Well, I think it's that kind of a sense of calling to actively and positively display and demonstrate and testify to the goodness and greatness and love of God that inspired the Old Testament Nazarites that we read about in chapter 6 of Numbers, which if you want to follow along for a bit is on page 140 of the Church Bibles, page 140. These people, the Nazarites, were different They stood out from the crowd and they were voluntarily different, different by choice. You see, priests and Levites were, in a sense, conscripts. They had that position by accident of birth, much in the same way that the queen is the queen by accident of birth. She's not chosen to be and the priests didn't choose to be priests. 
The so-called ordinary people of Israel, what the modern church might call the lay people, couldn't be priests or Levites because they weren't born into the right tribe. But they could choose to be a Nazarite. And if they did, they were subject to a unique combination of requirements. The prohibition about contact with dead bodies applied to everybody. Priests were prohibited from shaving their heads and drinking wine if they were serving in the tabernacle. Not all the time, but if they were serving in the tabernacle. But in some circumstances, actually, priests could touch the dead. Dead bodies of close relatives. The Rechabites refused to drink wine, but there was no general prohibition. Uh, Jeremiah was forbidden to attend a funeral. But in the case of the Nazarites, all these types of restrictions were uniquely brought together into one complete bundle. And it was a personal choice. It wasn't, as I've said, something that applied to membership of any particular social group. It was a personal decision, open to any man or any woman. A personal choice to make a special commitment to God, maybe to reflect some special cause for thanks or a special sense of calling to express the feeling of a particularly close relationship with God or wanting to explore what such a commitment to that kind of close relationship might actually mean and what it might be like. Well, it might be a personal commitment, but it sure was a public commitment, particularly within that sort of close-knit society. Everybody would be able to see that you were living the way of a Nazarite. The long hair, the abstention from wine, and not just wine, but even raisins and grapes. The absence from festivities or from funerals of close family members, you could not be a secret Nazarite. And depending how you react to such things, you'd have that constant public pressure to make good on your vow. People would be watching you. But on the other hand, you would also act as a constant reminder to those who knew you or those who interacted with you of the priority claim of God on your life and on their lives. So this wasn't in any sense about a withdrawal from society. A Nazarite was not a hermit. This period of special devotion to God was lived out in society, not away from it. Um, and in terms of personal effort and personal discipline, this wasn't a cheap vow. Um, imagine the emotional cost both to yourself and your family of that prohibition of contact at the time of loss of, say, a father or mother or brother or sister. And the cost of getting things wrong was big too. It, it, it immediately nullified the vow. You had to start again right from the beginning. And the renewal procedure itself involved the presentation of a costly, financially costly sacrifice. 
Now, normally the Nazarite vow was a temporary vow, although in some cases it was a lifelong vow, as in the case of Samuel, and was, as was intended with Samson. It went terribly wrong with Samson. But usually a Nazarite vow was for a specific time-limited period. It, it could be as little as a month, or it could be for several years. But generally, there was an end point. It's been said that the life of a Nazarite exemplifies three particular things, pilgrimage, witnessing, and holiness. So the, what's this all about the requirement to abstain from wine and other fermented drink and, and produce from the grapevine? Well, this actually symbolised the life of a pilgrim. You see, the ability to plant and enjoy a vineyard requires permanence. It takes at least three years for a vine to start to become productive from the date that you plant it. Uh, the Israelites in the desert hadn't got the luxury of that kind of permanence. They had to rely on God's providence rather than the vineyards that others had planted that they would receive once they reached the promised land. So the refusal to eat or drink of the vine was a symbolic return to that idea of, of pilgrimage. A recognition of people's de desire and destiny, destiny one day for a better place. This world was not their true or final home they were passing through, but while passing through, subject to God's calling on their lives. And what's the hair about? Well, the prohibition of the cutting of the hair was the, probably the most outward visual sign of the Nazarite vow, direct evidence to the community that there were people among them willing to dedicate their lives to God in a particular way. People who the community could see took God seriously as having that supreme claim on their lives. A, a visual and practical witness to the primary significance of God. The prohibition about going near dead bodies, even the dead bodies of a really close relative, well that's emphasising the idea of holiness and costly holiness, the costly calling of being set apart for God. The people of Israel as a whole were meant to be a testimony to the living God, the God who creates, sustains and directs life, the God of life. And the Nazarites were a clear and obvious testimony to that God of life and to his life within the community. So the forbidding of direct contact with your own family at a time of bereavement underlined the fact that God was a God of the living and that God's word was always to be obeyed, whatever the cost in personal relationships. The kingdom of God, the God of the living, comes first, even in matters of the closest relationships. Well, what, what might this look like for us today, us as God's people today.
today? Can it even be transferred or translated into modern life? What, what does Jesus say it takes to be one of his disciples? Well, one place that you can, you can start to have a look at, at that is uh, Luke. Uh, Luke chapter 14, verse 25, which is on page 1048 of the Church Bibles, page 1048. And it's quite interesting, the, it's not part of the Bible, but the NIV heading is the cost of being a disciple. If you look at, uh, say, verse 26, it says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Or, or verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Or verse 33, so therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This isn't Jesus talking just to the 12 disciples. That, that's not our get out of jail free card on, on that one, I'm afraid. This is Jesus talking to the great crowds of people who were following him. Effectively talking to the likes of you and me. The life of an ordinary Christian, if there can be such a thing as an ordinary Christian, is apparently and frankly shockingly meant to be a kind of crucifixion, a denial of self, of self-will and an embracing of God's will, whatever the cost and wherever that leads. A renouncing of everything, even the prior claims of family. It's jaw-dropping when you read about hating your family. Um, it's a Jewish way not of saying that you must actually and actively hate your family, but rather a way of emphasising that your priority love must be for Jesus. It's, all of that is shockingly difficult, but that is the call of Jesus to anyone that would want to follow him. It's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls costly grace. He says, costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again, a gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it costs a man his life. And it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it's costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it's grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God.
So there's no quick fix. There's no easy road to discipleship. It is a kind of crucifixion. And this is the call to so-called ordinary Christians. It isn't about growing your hair long, or your moustache for that matter. It isn't about giving up booze for Lent. It isn't about having a fish on the back of your car. Not that these couldn't or can't be special and valuable expressions of your faith, but they aren't the outworking of the faith itself. It's about wholeheartedly trying to live for Christ in all our encounters, in all our front lines, and maybe for those who can at the appropriate season of their lives, it's about taking a special period of time to volunteer somewhere, maybe peeling potatoes on a youth camp or bringing aid and Bible teaching to Romania or serving the church in some particular way. The possibilities are limitless. It's for us to work out what God is calling us to do. Uh, Paul, who was a man who himself had perhaps taken some kind of Nazarite vow, if you look at Acts 18, you will see that there's a, a hint and a suggestion that that might have happened. Paul says at Romans 12, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then later in chapter 12, Paul goes on to underline or outline what kind of life that transformed life might be. He says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honour, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one for evil for evil, but give thought to what is honourable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And he goes on, there's more. This is all positive stuff. It's about actually doing things, about actually and actively doing good to and for others. We have to be careful about doing good to people. We need to do good with people, I think, rather than to them. Sometimes it's costly. It costs us time. It's certainly costly of our emotional energies. 
It's costly of our moral sense. It's costly not to seek vengeance. To forgive can be agonisingly difficult, as I'm sure you will know. And this kind of life is public and visible. Paul says, give thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all. This is a considered life, and one that, like the life of a Nazarite, is a public advertisement of your commitment to God. People will look at you and see that you are trying to live in a little bit of a different way. It's a tall order, and the reality is that we're going to fail. Probably daily, certainly often. Even the Nazarite who had successfully completed the period of his or her vow had to go through the sacrificial system. A burnt offering, a sin offering, and a peace offering had to be brought before the Lord. I mean, which one of us can say, honestly, that we've given ourselves wholly to the Lord in the way that Jesus outlined at Luke 14? Which one of us could really say we're a successful Nazarite? Of course, it's the case that there was only one man... Jesus Christ, who really successfully completed the Nazarite vow, who successfully and totally did the will of God. One man, Jesus Christ, who lived out that life of consecrated and perfect obedience to God. The one man, Jesus Christ, who was truly righteous. We don't successfully and totally do the will of God. We are not Luke 14 people. We know we're sinful and frankly we hate it. We see our failure as a contradiction of who we are in Christ and a contradiction of God's love for us. We confess our sins and look to the cross where our pardon and righteousness was fully secured. We have to accept God's discipline and during those times of darkness, often Satan says to us, see, God's against you, he's angry, you're guilty, you're under his condemnation. But we can say with all the authority of Romans 8.1, And on the basis of Jesus Christ's death and righteousness, and in the words of the prophet Micah, do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is light for me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me out to the light and I will see his righteousness. This is what John Piper calls gutsy guilt. He says, I know of no other way to persevere in the Christian life in view of our constant failings. No other way to stay married for Christ's sake, to rear children and to be single and chaste 
and maintain hope and fruitfulness in ministry than this gutsy guilt. When I fall, I will rise. Though I have sinned, the very one against whom I have sinned will plead my case and execute justice for me. Not against me, but for me. Love this gospel. Love and live this gospel. Well, friends, Romans 1 to 7 lays out the entire and real picture. Holy God, sinful man, coming wrath, perfect saviour, Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, justification by faith, sanctification by faith. And then Paul sums up the liberating message of Christianity in the great conclusion of Romans 8.1. Therefore... In view of all that, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That, friends, is the essence of Christianity. That's the central foundational message of God to the world. This is what we are here to announce. This is what we are here to plead This is what we are called to communicate by word and action and character to all those we meet on our front lines. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the life of a Nazarite that we're called to today. Let's go for it. Amen.